Disney Episode 1 Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Welcome to the first official episode of Disneyish, a podcast for Disney fans. I am your host, Christopher, and if you want to get to know a little bit about me and who I am and what I do and why I'm doing this podcast, be sure to go back and listen to episode zero, the introductory episode, because I go into all of that there. But this is our first official episode, and I'm so excited. Uh, I mean, with this being the first episode of the podcast, I feel like I kind of have to start with Snow White. I mean, it just makes sense. You kind of have to start here. This is where everything else that followed came from, right? So it just makes sense. And before I get into talking about Snow White, I do want to provide you with some Disney-related news. So let's get started with that. So first up here is something that I think, if you aren't aware of this already, it's probably something that's going to make you feel a certain way. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if that's going to be a positive thing or a negative thing. I feel like this is going to be divisive for people, but apparently, and this comes from DisneyDining.com, apparently Disney is, and the headline, the, the title of the headline is, Disney reportedly in talks to acquire Harry Potter from Warner Brothers Entertainment. Now, this would be yet another property. I mean, Disney has acquired so much over the years, right? Marvel, Star Wars, pretty much anything under 20th Century Fox. That's all Disney now. And now they're in talks of possibly taking Harry Potter from Warner Brothers. So, I mean, I have mixed feelings about Disney taking you know, basically acquiring all of this stuff because I feel like there's an argument to be made that the more powerful you become, the less power you actually have. Because the more that Disney acquires and the more eclectic that it becomes, the less unique it becomes, the less of a brand name it becomes. It's basically, I think I said in my introductory episode that it's gotten to the point at which Disney is basically synonymous with pop culture. And I feel like the more that it acquires, the more and more that's going to be true. And the second piece of news that I want to share with you, and the link to this article will also be in the uh, show notes, as will, you know, anytime that I share Disney-related news with you on the podcast, I will put the links to the articles in the show notes for you. But this comes from Variety. And the headline says, Angela Bassett wins Golden Globe for Black Panther Wakanda Forever as first actor to earn major award for Marvel movie. And uh, again, like I said, this comes from Variety. And it says, Angela Bassett won the Golden Globe Award Tuesday for her performance in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, making the 64-year-old the first actor ever to win a major individual acting award for a movie based on Marvel Comics. So congratulations to Angela Bassett. I have not yet seen Black Panther Wakanda Forever, but uh, that is on my never-ending list of movies to get to eventually. 
uh, and I may or may not be covering it on the podcast. So uh, you heard that here. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into talking about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, so this movie was originally released on December 21st, 1937. Uh, it has several writers. We have Ted Sears, Richard Creedon, Otto Englander, Dick Record, uh, Earl Hurd. And by the way, I might be mispronouncing a few of these names. And if you know that I am, I sincerely apologize. But <laughs> Meryl Demaris, uh, Dorothy Ann Blank, and Webb Smith. And of course, it is based on Snow White by the Brothers Grimm, the uh, the fairy tale. And we also have several directors. We have uh, David Hand as the supervising director. William Contrell, uh, Wilfred Jackson, Larry Morey, Perse Bierce, I might be mispronouncing that, and Ben Sharpstein, and those are all sequence directors. And the interesting thing about this movie is that there is obviously a relatively large cast because there's a relatively large cast of characters, right? Uh, you know, you've got like Snow White, the Evil Queen, the Huntsman, the Seven Dwarfs, like there's quite a few characters in this movie, but they are pretty much all uncredited which is really weird, but it's probably because they probably just weren't required to do that yet to credit the actors. And, you know, this was also probably a learning exercise. And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of spitballing here because obviously that would be incredibly unusual today. That doesn't happen, you know. Uh, but I do want to give them credit here because, you know, a lot of this voice work is really, really well done and phenomenal and is a big part of what makes this movie what it is. So we've got Adriana Casalotti as Snow White. We have Lucille Laverne as Evil Queen, and she plays both the queen in her beautiful regal form and also the queen in her old hag form, which is really, really impressive. We have Moroni Olsen as the Magic Mirror, Stuart Buchanan as the Huntsman, Harry Stockwell as the Prince, Roy Atwell as Doc, Otis Harlan as Happy, Eddie Collins as Dopey, uh, Pinto Kulvig as Sleepy, Grumpy, and Dopey's Hiccups, <laughs> uh, Billy Gilbert as Sneezy, and Scotty Metra as Bashful. And the music in this movie, which to me I think is one of the highlights, it's by far one of the best parts of this movie, uh, is by Frank Churchill, Paul Smith, and Lee Harline. Brief Plot synopsis, if you haven't seen this movie, I'm... What are you even doing here? <laughs> I mean, this is a Disney podcast, and this is the first Disney feature-length movie to have ever been released, and it's a classic. And if you haven't seen this, then what are you even doing with your life listening to a Disney podcast? But uh, this will be something that I incorporate into the podcast uh, every episode, Uh you know, just a brief synopsis of the movie to give you a refresher. Uh, but Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is a classic Disney animated film released in 1937 based on the fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm. And it tells the story of a young princess named Snow White who is forced to flee from her evil stepmother, the Evil Queen. She stumbles upon a small cottage belonging to Seven Dwarfs and she becomes their housekeeper, making their home a happy place. The evil stepmother tries to kill Snow White, but ultimately Snow White is saved by the dwarfs and a prince who falls in love with her. The movie is known for its memorable characters, enchanting music, and beautiful animation. And yeah, I definitely have to agree with most of what that last sentence there says, because uh, the music in this movie is just beautiful. And the animation for this being 1937 and the first 
you know, feature length animated movie ever made, it holds up. Like it's actually still really, really good and really beautiful. And the colors are so vibrant and yeah, just very, very impressive. So before I get into discussing the movie itself and the plot and the characters and, you know, all that stuff, uh, I want to provide you with a little bit of trivia related to the movie. And uh, the movie is actually the first, as I've already said, full-length animated feature of all time. And it took over three years to make and was the most expensive movie ever made at the time with a budget of approximately $1.5 million, which is approximately $31 million today. It enjoyed a $418 million box office success. So definitely a successful movie, but... It's also important to keep in mind that it has been re-released to theaters countless times. So that number is probably, I can't say for sure, I don't know for sure, but that number is probably reflective of basically all of the times that it's had a run in theaters, which uh, has been many. The movie was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song for Whistle While You Work, but it lost to Sweet Leilani from Wakiki Wedding, which I've actually never even heard of before, so it's kind of crazy that Snow White lost to that, but that's the way it works sometimes. It did, however, win an honorary Oscar in 1939 at the 11th Academy Awards. Uh, that Oscar was for Outstanding Achievement in the Use of Color for the Enhancement of Dramatic Mood. And like I said, yeah, the vibrant colors in this movie and the shadowing, and it's just really, really brilliantly done, especially for a movie that was released in 1937. And uh, this is from the book, The Fairest One of All, The Making of Walt Disney, Snow White, and the Seven Dwarfs uh, by J.B. Kaufman. Uh, Walt Disney was actually a bit worried that Adriana Casalotti, who of course plays the voice of Snow White, uh, he was a bit worried that her high-pitched voice would irritate some viewers. And I mean, I have to admit, he kind of had a legit worry there because that's one of my least favorite parts of this movie is her voice. I have gotten used to it, but there was a time when that really, really irritated me because there are times where it does kind of sound like nails on a chalkboard. And I know that that sounds like a really, really harsh thing to say, but it is very, very, very high pitched. And uh, I think that what they were trying to do was not only kind of present her as, you know, innocent and young and childlike, but also, you know, that she had like basically the singing voice of a bird, you know, because there are times where she does almost sound like a bird. And uh, this is something that I wasn't aware of. Um, a good friend of mine, a very close friend of mine actually told me about this. And spoiler alert, you might actually be hearing from her in this episode. Uh <laughs> She told me that apparently Disney made uh, Adriana Casalotti sign a contract that prevented her from doing work with anyone else. So, you know, she basically was contract bound to not work with any other companies, which, you know, is really I don't know why she would have agreed to something like that, because I don't know how much money she made from this. Like, I don't know how much, uh, you know, if she was able to basically like if she got rich off this and was able to live the rest of her life comfortably uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem like one movie would do that for you, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know what the details of that are, but uh, I just wanted to make you aware of that. So uh, without further ado, though, let's actually get into talking about this movie and, uh, you know, it's its plot and its music and the characters and all that sort of stuff, the good stuff here, which you're probably here to actually listen to mostly. So like I said already, 
I do have to tip my hat to the music composers because most of the music in this movie is so good. Uh, there are a couple of songs that I don't really care a whole lot for, but most of it is really, really good. Right off the bat, we get the one song melody over the opening credits, which is wonderful. It really sets the tone for the movie. It's a beautiful melody. And then, of course, we get the storybook opening. And this is something that a lot of the classic Disney animated movies have done. Um, Enchanted and Disenchanted have kind of parodied this, you know, uh, where you get like the storybook opening onto a, you know, onto the first page and a, uh, sometimes it's a narrator, like sometimes it's a voiceover, other times it's text on the screen as it is here. Um, kind of just giving you some expository information about, you know, what has happened up to this point in the story. Uh, and we get the someday my principal calm melody playing as the book opens. Uh, and the text that we get is once upon a time, there lived a lovely little princess named Snow White. Her vain and wicked stepmother, the queen, feared that someday Snow White's beauty would surpass her own. So she dressed the little princess in rags and forced her to work as a scullery maid. And then the page turns and we get, Each day, the vain queen consulted her magic mirror. Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest one of all? And as long as the mirror answered, You are the fairest one of all, Snow White was safe from the queen's jealousy. But of course, we know that that's not going to last very long <laughs> because that's the whole conflict of the movie. Uh, I do like that it gives you plenty of time to read that. You know, it's not like you've really, really got to read that very, very quickly because you've only got a few seconds to do it. Like it really does give you plenty of time to read that. And one thing that's worth mentioning is that the queen is only ever referred to as such in the movie. We never learn her name. But from what I've read, and uh, this is something that comes up again in a book series that I will mention briefly in a bit, uh, but I guess in an early draft of the movie, um, the queen's name was named, it was mentioned, and it was Grimhilda. I think that's how you pronounce that. It's G-R-I-M-H-I-L-D-E. Uh, and there's a book series that I really, really love, uh, the Disney Villains series by Serena Valentino. She has uh, nine books out right now. Uh, each one kind of goes into the backstory of one of the iconic Disney villains and, you know, just makes them more sympathetic and we kind of get their story. We get their side of the story and what made them that way. And the first one in the series is actually Fairest of All, which of course is about the evil queen. And that's my favorite one in the series. That book only ever refers to the queen as the queen, but then the character returns in a later book in the series called The Odd Sisters, which is about uh, Serena's original characters, The Odd Sisters. And in that book, she is referred to as Grimhilda. So just worth mentioning that um, apparently Disney has uh, kind of adopted the name Grimhilda, even though it's not actually said in the movie. But yeah, I highly, highly recommend that series, especially Fairest of All. You won't watch this movie the same way again after reading that book. Um, because I love the Evil Queen. She's my second favorite Disney villain just because of how beautiful and regal and elegant she is. Uh, but one of the problems with this movie is the villain's lack of compelling motivation. I mean, she's vain and jealous. That's really all that there is to her. She will stop at nothing to get rid of Snow White so that her mirror will say that she's the prettiest one in the land. And it's pretty superficial and shallow. It's really not all that compelling. 
So that is definitely one of the weaker aspects of this movie. So once we get past that storybook intro, we get into the actual movie. Uh, the track that's playing there is a score. It's an instrumental piece called Magic Mirror, and it's so good. Uh, as previously mentioned, most of the music in this movie is phenomenal, but I would honestly say that the score that's associated with the Queen is when it's at its best. It's eerie, it's dark, and at times it even sounds a little bit like a horror movie score, and it's just, it captures the mood of the scenes that she's in so well. So I have to tip my hat to the score, especially when, uh, you know, it's related to the queen. The queen is so elegant and beautiful and totally rocks the purple. Like I said, that's a big part of the reason why she's one of my favorite characters. Uh, she approaches the mirror and she says, slave in the magic mirror, come from the farthest space through wind and darkness. I summon thee speak. Let me see thy face. And I like this because it shows us that this isn't just an ordinary queen. She's also very clearly a witch. That's very clearly a spell. And the mirror asks, what wouldst thou know, my queen? And she says, magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest one of all? Now, one of the reasons why I wanted to quote this directly on the podcast is that Interestingly, this is often misremembered and misquoted. People swear that she says mirror, mirror on the wall. And even I, there was a time when, before I realized that this was one of those Mandela effect things, there was a time when I would have thought that that's what she said. I would have bet my life on it. It's just like with, uh, you know, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, when uh, Vader says, no, I am your father. And that quote very, very frequently gets misquoted as Luke, I am your father, but he doesn't say that. And same here. She does not say mirror, mirror on the wall. She says magic mirror on the wall. But one thing that I find really ridiculous about this whole concept of, you know, this spirit in the mirror being able to tell the queen who the most beautiful one in the kingdom is, is that who is to even say that? I mean, even if this spirit in the magic mirror is like this omnipotent being who has, you know, this uh, knowledge that no other human could possibly have, even if that's the case, beauty is still subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder. So how can this mirror be like being truthful? Because beauty is, again, in the eye of the beholder. It's not something that you can like ask this oracle for, you know, like, who is the most beautiful person in the kingdom? Like, that's subjective. You can't offer an objective answer to that. Uh, but I do think that there is another possible way to interpret that, and I kind of wish that the movie had hammered this home a little bit harder, because I do think that it is intended to be one of the themes and morals of the movie, but I don't think that it comes across as... Uh, obviously as it could that is that you know the mirror might be saying that snow white is the fairest in the land that she's far more beautiful than you are because she's beautiful on the inside as well right she she's kind she's loving she's curious about the world around her she you know she has inner beauty whereas the evil queen is wicked and vain and jealous and murderous and selfish, and, you know, she's not beautiful on the inside. So, you know, I think that there is a possible theme in this movie, which is that inner beauty 
is far more important than, uh, you know, the skin deep kind of beauty. And that is, of course, something that Beauty and the Beast, that movie also explores that theme. But I think it does it in a much more effective way because it's much more, you know, it, it makes it much more obvious that that is one of the themes, whereas here it's kind of swept under the rug. So the mirror says to her, alas, she is far more fair than thee, which of course, you know, he's saying she's more beautiful than you are. And uh, the queen doesn't yet know who he's talking about. Uh, So before she finds out who he's talking about, she says, alas, for her, which means, you know, of course, unfortunate. That's unfortunate for her because it's not unfortunate for me. That's unfortunate for her because it just means I'm going to have to get rid of her. Uh, I do like about this movie as well that we get a setup for the ending pretty early on because uh snow white sings to the birds uh you know that they're by a wishing well and she seems to truly believe that that is actually a wishing well and that kind of shows us why she is so ready to believe that the poison apple grants wishes at the end because if she believes in wishing wells then of course she's going to believe in a wishing apple so i do kind of like how that's set up how they plant that seed early on but I do have to laugh, though, at how <laughs> when she's when she's singing into the well, her echoes will like patiently wait for her to finish her line before they come back. <laughs> it's just it's one of those things that you just have to let it go. You just have to enjoy it. Uh, obviously, that's not what would really happen. But there's a lot of things that happen in this movie that are not realistic. So I think I can let that go. We also, of course, get plenty of Snow White communicating with animals in this movie. I just mentioned the scene near the beginning where she's basically talking with the birds at the well. But it's not just birds. I mean, throughout this entire movie, there are scenes of her communicating with woodland creatures of all kinds. And uh, it's kind of like, I think that that is really potentially indicative of more of the legacy that this movie has left in its wake. Because... That's kind of become synonymous with Disney princesses, you know, like that ability to basically be an animal whisperer. I mean, you even see that like played off on in uh, Enchanted and Disenchanted. And I think that, you know, it's probably in large part because of this movie and the legacy that it left behind. So we then see the prince come upon her. It seems like he hears her voice and he's drawn to it. And this is going to be mirrored again in Sleeping Beauty. We have a very similar scene in Sleeping Beauty. Uh, now apparently, and I, I don't know where this information comes from, to be honest with you, because it's never stated in the movie. I don't know if Walt Disney said this or if it was in the script or I I honestly don't know. I can't give you that info because I don't know, but apparently Snow White is supposed to be 14 in this movie, whereas the prince is supposed to be 31. I mean, if that is the case, then yikes. (laughs) I mean, Disney has a long history of being problematic. Uh, I touched upon that a little bit in my introductory episode. Obviously, uh, as I actually dive into some of these movies on the podcast, I'll be talking about that in more detail as examples come up. Uh, But, you know, I mean, this is a movie that came out in 1937. We're talking, you know, this is what? This is 2023. This is almost 100 years ago at this point. Uh, It's like 80-something years you know, I'm willing to look past these things to an extent. Obviously, I don't condone, you know, relationships between 31 and 14-year-olds. Uh, but I think that there's a fine line. Like, there, you can balance between enjoying something while also acknowledging 
how it's problematic. And this is definitely an example of that. And I kind of just choose to, because it's not explicitly stated anywhere in the movie that that kind of age difference, that kind of age gap is there, and that the prince is apparently like a grown adult and Snow White is basically a child, uh, because that's never explicitly stated in the movie, I choose not to believe that. (laughs) So uh, again, I don't even know where that comes from, but I've heard that countless times. Uh, and the little bit of research that I did for this podcast, uh, you know, confirmed that, but I don't know what the original source is. Like, I don't know where, like, how is that known? How do we know that that's the case? I don't know. If you know, please feel free to share with me. Please feel free to tell me. I would love to hear from you. Uh, but yeah, anyway, one thing that I do like about the fairest of all novel by Serena Valentino that I've already mentioned a couple of times is that, It does establish that Snow White and the prince already knew each other before this encounter. And, you know, like I said before, one thing that I love about that book is that you'll watch Snow White after reading the book and watch it in a completely different way. I think that you'll appreciate it a lot more. I certainly did. I didn't used to love this movie. (laughs) I always enjoyed the Evil Queen as a character. Like I said, I found her regal and beautiful and elegant and uh, ambitious, and I just... You know, I I felt drawn to that, but, you know, it's problematic in a lot of ways because basically Snow White's only desire is to marry this prince. That's all she cares about, basically. I mean, she even completely abandons all of her newfound friends, says goodbye to them at the end so that she can go off with the prince. And I'll talk more about that when I get to that part. But uh, that's pretty much her only ambition in life. And that was common for Disney movies of this era, like the early Disney movies Uh, The princesses tended to be very one-dimensional. They only cared about one thing. (laughs) Uh, And that's definitely no exception here. I would say that both the main hero of this movie and the main villain are rather one-dimensional and don't have a lot of compelling motivation. But after I read Fairest of All, I really, really appreciated this movie a whole lot more. And that's one of the reasons, is that it does establish that they already knew each other. And it makes a lot of sense. Like when you watch that scene and keep that in mind that according to this novel, now, of course, you know, we could debate about whether or not that novel is canon, uh, you know, but if you do really enjoy the novel and you choose to kind of see it as canon, then going into the movie, you do see that differently because when he comes up on, you know, when he like uh, comes up on the castle and hears her singing and approaches her, There really is no clear indication. There's nothing that says for sure that this is absolutely positively their first time meeting. She kind of runs away from him because he startles her and because she doesn't want the queen to see her interacting with him. The book kind of establishes that. So it really, really works really well. And it's another reason why I recommend uh, reading that book. There are so many reasons that I recommend that, but... uh, I can't recall if the book says anything about their ages. Uh, I don't think it does. And if it does, it's certainly not 14 and 31, I can tell you that. But uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, it makes perfect sense because there's really nothing in the dialogue that contradicts the idea that they already knew each other. Uh, In fact, if anything, there's only support in the movie that would go toward that because Snow White sings in that song, I'm wishing for the one I love to find me today. She doesn't say, for the one I will love. She says, for the one I love. 
That, to me, kind of suggests that she wants the person that she's in love with to find her, and she's already in love with this person, right? You know, again, like I said, reading that novel and then going into this movie, you do get a different interpretation. And I think that that line does support the idea that they already knew each other before that encounter. But like I said, the book establishes that Snow White runs away because she uh, she's startled and because she's afraid of the queen seeing her interacting with him. And you do see the queen looking through the window at Snow White and the prince, and she has a furious expression on her face. And I've seen some people interpret that as jealousy because she too likes the prince, and that's actually why she hates Snow White. I don't know how I feel about that, uh, but I mean, if he is indeed 31, then I can maybe see that because to me, based on her appearance, she doesn't look to be too much older than that. I would say definitely no older than 40. So, you know, she's probably closer in age to the prince than Snow White is if Snow White is in fact 14. Like I said, I choose not to believe that, but, uh, you know, so I guess that would make sense. But I don't really know how I feel about that. I don't think so much that it's uh, jealousy because she loves the prince or that she's attracted to the prince. She wants to be with the prince. I don't think it's that. I think it's more so that Snow White getting this attention from a man is just more evidence of how beautiful she is, right? So that's why she has that furious expression on her face. Of course, we then get the evil queen ordering the huntsman to bring Snow White to a secluded glade. Uh, where she can pick wildflowers, and then she wants the huntsman to kill her. And the huntsman protests, you know, he says, but your majesty, the princess. But uh, she says, silence, you know the penalty if you fail. And she then hands him a box that she wants him to bring her heart back in. This is so dark. I mean, this is dark even for 2023 standards. I can't imagine how people might have responded to this in 1937. I mean, this is a parent, essentially, a stepmother. I don't know, like, what people's viewpoints, what their perspectives were on step-parents back in the 1930s, but I consider a step-parent to be a parent. I mean, because it's not blood that makes a family, it's love. Uh, so this is essentially a parent, and she is ordering her stepdaughter to be murdered and for her heart to be brought back in a box as proof. I mean, this is evil. This is so evil, especially with the motivation being so silly that, oh, well, she just, she's more beautiful than I am because my mirror says so. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but it's so dark. I mean, and the book, the fairest of all novel that I keep referring to, uh, really, really, really does hammer that home. It's a very, very dark novel. Uh, and I honestly really enjoy that. I think it was bold and daring for a movie to go there in 1937, you know, like, uh, yeah, bring her heart back in this box. <laughs> and of course the huntsman isn't able to do it. So he tells Snow White to run for her life. And this is a very cool sequence. It's one of the best in the movie, in my opinion, because you do kind of feel for Snow White here. I mean, she's a child. She's young. I mean, like I said, I choose not to believe that she's 14 and the prince is 31, but it is very clear that she's young. She could be 14, but I don't think that the prince is much older than that if she is 14. Uh, I just, I, I, I have to believe that <laughs> because otherwise it's just, uh, it's, it's really, 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 really problematic. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, she's young and she's terrified. I mean, she is absolutely terrified and she runs through the forest now basically being homeless and sees everything as a monster because you would if you basically grew up in the seclusion of a castle being outside in the dark woods by yourself for basically the first time in your life as a child you know you would be terrified and i think that the movie really 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 uh paints that really well and it would make sense that this would be scary to her you know because like I said, not only did she just find out that her stepmother wants her dead, but this is also probably her first time in the woods by herself. So it makes total sense. And I do feel really sorry for her in this scene. And one thing that's kind of odd about this movie is that a lot of the dialogue, even when it's not a song, rhymes. So Snow White, for example, and this is just one of countless examples in the movie. There are so many examples of this. This is just one. But this is after she encounters the large group of woodland animals after she ran through the forest and had a breakdown. Uh, she says, I'm awfully sorry. I didn't mean to frighten you, but you don't know what I've been through. And all because I was afraid. I'm so ashamed of the fuss I've made. <laughs> so, yeah, I just wanted to call attention to the, the rhyming in this movie because there is a lot of it. But there is a line in the song with a smile and a song, which is honestly probably my favorite song in the movie. Uh, there's no use in grumbling when raindrops come tumbling. Remember, you're the one who can fill the world with sunshine. I do really, really like that. That's beautiful. Uh, but <laughs> she, you know, she's directed toward the dwarf's cottage because the animals know where she can sleep. And she knocks on the door twice in quick succession and then immediately says, guess there's no one home. And I'm just like, or I don't know, maybe give whoever might be home time to get to the door. <laughs> you knocked twice and then immediately determined that nobody was home. Like, and then to kind of further fuel that point, she then opens the door and says, hello, may I come in? Like, who are you talking to? If you just ascertained that nobody's home, then who were you asking if you can come in? It doesn't make sense. But anyway, uh, you know, she then cleans up the cottage. She sings Whistle While You Work, which, uh, you know, that song is, of course, kind of echoed and enchanted in its song, Happy Working Song. I'll definitely be referencing Enchanted and Disenchanted probably quite a bit on this podcast. I don't just mean in this episode, but on the podcast in general, because first of all, I love those movies, especially Disenchanted. And second of all, what one of the main things that I love about those movies, uh, what I love about those movies is that they do kind of parody Disney, you know, like they're self-referential in a lot of ways. And so I probably will be bringing them up a lot. But uh, there's a song in Enchanted called Happy Working Song. It's definitely meant to echo Whistle While You Work. Uh, there's some very interesting imagery uh, at about 20 minutes, 42 seconds into the movie. I'm not going to say what it is. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. If you pull up the movie and go to that timestamp, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, but in the Hi Ho song, this is actually one of my least favorite songs in the movie. I just don't really care a whole lot for it. But uh, something that I don't think I noticed before is how exhausted and sleepy Sleepy seems while they walk home in a line. And I have to say, poor guy. I mean... He may need to get his thyroid checked or something, maybe get to bed at an earlier hour or something, because he looks exhausted, the poor guy. I mean, he definitely lives up to his name. 
Another bit that this movie does a lot, and this is something that I actually really enjoy. I think it's actually funny. It's cute. Uh, and there are times where it's like possibly somewhat suggestive. I don't know if that was the intention, but, uh, you know, Doc has this thing where he sometimes can't get his words out right. And he says the wrong thing. Like he'll uh, reverse the letters or he'll reverse the words or so an example of this is when they get home, when the dwarfs get home and see that somebody's in their house, uh, you know, he says the lit's light instead of the light's lit. <laughs> and it only gets even better from there because then when the dwarfs actually meet Snow White, he says, uh, what are you and who are you doing? <laughs> I love this line. <laughs> and like I said, I don't know if that was intended to be intentional or I mean, if that was, yeah, that made sense. If that was intended to be, uh, you know, like suggestive, but I love it. Uh, and then I love how once they realize that someone is in their home, their initial reaction is to think that it's a ghost, a goblin, a demon, or a dragon. And it's interesting because that kind of does suggest that these are commonplace beings in this universe, even though we don't ever see them. Like, we don't really ever see these mystical, magical creatures in this movie. We do see magical elements, like the queen using magic and using magic to transform and stuff like that, but we don't really ever see any magical creatures. Uh, but the fact that they assume that that might be what's in their house suggests that these creatures might exist in this world. I do have to say, though, that I absolutely hate, I hate this part of the movie. I don't know why I hate it so much. I think just because of how unrealistic it is, even though pretty much everything in this movie is unrealistic. But <laughs> uh, there's a part where Sneezy, I mean, this happens more than once, but I feel like it's especially egregious the first time it happens. Uh, Sneezy sneezes so hard that it basically creates a small windstorm in the cottage. And it's ridiculous. And it's also kind of disgusting. I think that might be another reason why I hate it. I mean, can you imagine somebody sneezing so hard that they basically create like a windstorm of mucus that blows you away? Like, that's gross. <laughs> that's so disgusting. And I hate that imagery. So I think that's another reason why I hate it. But yeah, uh, they eventually do realize that whatever is in the house is in the bedroom. And Doc says that one of them has got to go down and chase it up, which is another example of his, you know, fumbling his words, it coming out wrong. And they all look at Dopey. And I have to say, poor Dopey. Poor Dopey is always getting the short end of the stick all the time. And it's not fair. I feel so sorry for him. Uh, but and then you've got like Grumpy and his kind of his bit is that he's a bit of a misogynist. You know, he says things like all females is poison. And uh, they're full of wicked wiles. But what I find really interesting about this is that, to me, the way that it's presented and the way that the movie frames it is that Grumpy's not right. We're meant to think of him as ridiculous. We're meant to think of that as, you know, well, he's not right in that. Like, he's just, he's bitter, you know? Like, he just hates everything. So we're not really meant to see that as valid. And I do like that. I do like the way that it's presented. I mean, he doesn't even know what wicked wiles means. You know, he says that women are full of wicked wiles, but then he doesn't even know what that means. And that to me suggests that he might not even actually believe that about women. That's just something that he's heard. It's something that has been taught to him. Uh, but, you know, speaking of women and how this movie presents women, uh, it is really strange to me how... 
Snow White basically becomes very much like a mother to them, even though by all appearances, she seems to be like the age dynamic is actually reversed. Like they're basically old enough to be her father, if not her grandfather. Uh, But she takes on this nurturing mother role and treats them very much like children, even though they are grown men. Uh, You know, she insists that they wash their hands and whatnot. They all try to lie and say that their hands have already been washed. She then insists on seeing their hands. Doc shows her his hands, revealing that they're dirty. And Snow White says, why, Doc, I'm surprised. And so she really does kind of treat them like children and behaves like a mother to them, which is very weird. Uh, And I also wonder, it's like she says, why, Doc, I'm surprised. And I'm like, why are you surprised? You don't know them at all. You literally just met these people. (laughs) And then, like, she has the nerve to say, march straight outside and wash or you'll not get a bite to eat. Like, what? This is their house. You don't have the right to go in this house and insist, like, Go in this house and insist that these men wash their hands before they eat or else they're not going to eat. Like, this is their house. You're a guest here. They're kind enough to let you into their house and shelter you from the queen and keep you safe and basically give you their house as a sanctuary. And you're bossing them around and, you know, telling them how to live their lives and being a parent to them, being a hovercraft parent. And it's like... What are you doing? You don't know these people. Like, <laughs> it's just really weird to me. And the movie paints it as her purity and her kindness. But, you know, I also kind of read this as just entitlement. Like, this is kind of how you would expect a royal princess to behave. You know, to go into somebody else's house and insist that they mold their way of living to yours. It's, to me, that's kind of how I read it. But maybe I'm wrong. I also do want to emphasize that, like, I am not here for Grumpy's misogyny. It's not funny. Uh, But also, I do kind of, like I said, because of how Snow White is behaving, I do understand why he would have reason not to trust her. That reason, of course, has nothing at all to do with her being a young woman, but she is taking the house over. She's making it hers. She's treating them like children, even though they're grown adults. And she is also the queen's stepdaughter. She's associated with the queen, whom they seem to know is evil. So, uh, you know, I might behave in a similar way, but of course, without the misogyny. (laughs) But, you know, he's a grown man. She's a child. And he should not have to listen to her. He should not have to. uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm all for sanitation. I'm all for washing your hands. And, you know, especially after mining all day you know you want to be sanitary before you eat but they're also grown adults who have the right to live life the way that they want to live it in their own home you know like he shouldn't have to listen to her so i do get his perspective i mean there's even one scene where he runs into the door right grumpy slams into the door and she laughs at him and then she says did you hurt yourself and The tone of voice is not, to me at least, out of care. It's out of mockery. Like, she's mocking him. So, she's... I mean, I do think that she is a bit of a spoiled princess. Now, where does that come from? I don't know. Because it certainly doesn't seem like the queen was spoiling her. So, I don't know how long maybe she had with her father before he died. I don't know. We don't get that backstory in this movie. We get a little bit of it in the book. 
fairest of all by Serena Valentino, which I keep mentioning, <laughs> but uh, we don't really get it in this movie at all. But like I said, I mean, you know, I am here for sanitation, but at the same time, they are grown adults and they have the right to live the way they want to live. Uh, but I do find it funny how they treat water like it's this totally new frontier. Like they approach the the tub and uh, they're like, courage, men, courage. Oh, it's wet. <laughs> I mean, they're they're behaving as if they really don't even know what water is. And I mean, if they bathe and wash up so infrequently that water is like a totally new frontier to them, then, oh man, yeah, that stench must be unreal. But at the same time, it's like, where did they get that many bars of soap? Like, if they don't really wash up at all, <laughs> then why do they have all that soap on hand? I'm willing to let that go because I know that I'm being nitpicky about a Disney movie from 1937, but, you know, just, yeah, I felt like I needed to point that out. There's another line that is kind of suggestive, which to me suggests the possibility that Doc's line earlier on about, you know, what are you and who are you doing might have actually been intentionally suggestive because uh, Bashful asks, do you have to wash where it doesn't show? Wow. <laughs> wow, that's all I'm going to say. I don't think I need to say anything more than that. Uh, but we then go back to the Evil Queen's castle. And once again, the music here is so good. This time, the piece is called I've Been Tricked, which makes sense because this is the scene where she finds out that she has been tricked, that the huntsman has brought her back the heart of a pig, and that Snow White is still alive, living with the dwarfs. So she kind of marches down to the basement, to the dungeons. Uh, we see skulls and skeletons in the basement when she goes down, and uh, she's going to go brew her transformation potion. And that is one thing that I do wish Ferris of all had explored. It doesn't explain why there are skeletons and bodies in the basement. Like, <laughs> because in that novel, by all appearances, the king was a, a good and just king uh, who wouldn't have been the type to keep prisoners in the dungeon and have them starve to death and then keep their corpses, their bones down there. Like, that's really, really messed up and dark. And the character that's presented in that novel wouldn't have done that. And the queen wouldn't have done that prior to, you know, becoming corrupt. So I, I do wish that the novel had explained that, but it doesn't. But anyway, moving on part of the potion that she brews uh, calls for some sort of black liquid, which will shroud her clothes in black. And I'm just thinking, or you could just wear black clothes. Like <laughs> I don't understand why you need, like an ingredient in a potion to have your clothes be black. I mean, you could just put black clothes on, but whatever. Maybe it's because she knew that her size would change after she became the hag and she wouldn't have anything in the castle that would fit her. I don't know. But again, I'm overthinking this, but uh, it's just one of those things that I find funny because it's like that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but whatever. Uh, I do love the shot of the evil queen looking at her reflection in the goblet. It's such a cool scene. It's so visually impressive, especially for a movie that came out in 1937. It's just really, really, really well done. We then get the yodeling song scene, and this is by far my least favorite scene of the entire movie. It's my least favorite song on the soundtrack, and for something that does absolutely nothing whatsoever to move the plot forward and enhance it it goes on and on and on <laughs> it also to me 
kind of takes me out of the movie because something about it, the musical style, just something about the way it's done seems so much more to me like something 1930s than something medieval. It just seems like it doesn't belong. Uh, but yeah, I just really, really hate that scene. I mean, most of the time, I'll just skip over that scene when I watch this movie because that's how much I hate it. I just feel like it does nothing to move the story forward. It's unnecessary. It goes on for too long. But uh, we then get Someday My Prince Will Come. And uh, I do love this song. It's beautiful. It has a really beautiful melody. It's a classic. Uh, however, you know, this is another example of how this movie is problematic because this song is all about her singing about her dreams coming true. And the only real ambition that she seems to have is to uh, be with this prince who she barely knows. Uh, you know, if you just look at the movie and the context that the movie gives us, uh, you know, not counting that novel that may or may not even be canon, you look at the context of the movie and she barely knows this person. And yet that's her number one dream is to be with him. And so this is exactly why some of these classic Disney movies are considered so problematic because she has no ambition of like, uh, you know, being a queen and ruling or, uh, you know, learning a skill or getting some sort of education in something or, you know, it's just, it's very, very simplified and, oh, I just want this handsome prince and to live the rest of my life with him, you know, so it's a beautiful song, but it's also definitely, uh, you know, it's like a guilty pleasure thing where, like I think I said already, it's one of those things where you kind of just have to accept that this was the time period and things were different. And a movie like this probably wouldn't be made today. And if it were, it would be a parody. <laughs> so, yeah. She then determines that it's past bedtime because, you know, she rules the house. Uh, she This is now her house. Um, she creates the rules. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and the dwarfs decide to let her sleep in their beds. And it's a wonderful act of kindness. But at the same time, this is another example of faulty logic in this movie because they then fight over the one cushion that is downstairs. It's like a cushion slash pillow. They all fight over it. They end up tearing it apart and using the feathers to, you know, basically use as comfort. But it's like... They had seven beds upstairs. Now, granted, they're small beds because they're small people, but still, that means that there are at least, probably more, because I don't know about you, but I usually do have more than one blanket in my bed. So, usually more than one pillow, more than one blanket. But that means, like, at the bare minimum, there are seven blankets up there, which means that she didn't need all of them. Like, <laughs> you know, like... She did not need all of the pillows and blankets that were up in that bedroom. They could have taken some of them downstairs with them. It's kind of ridiculous that they fight over that one cushion, but whatever. One thing that I do find kind of weird about this movie, though, is that, uh, I mean, it's one of several things I find weird about it, but when the queen transforms into the old hag, I mean, not only does her appearance change, but so does her personality. Uh, she goes from being like this cold, calculated, uh, regal, dignified woman to basically being maniacal and psychotic. You know, like, she is now laughing hysterically at the thought of Snow White being buried alive. Again, dark. Uh, you know, when she says, when she breaks the tender peel to taste the apple in my hand, her breath will still, her blood congeal, then I'll be fairest in the land. 
So again, more rhyming. But yeah, I mean, she's just completely unhinged, psychotic, uh, maniacal. And that happens at the drop of a hat after she transforms. So it seems like the spell transformed her personality as well, not just her appearance. It's really interesting. But there is also a potential plot hole here. And again, it's a Disney movie from 1937 based on a very old fairy tale. So it's definitely something I'm willing to let go, but I want to bring it up. Snow White won't actually be dead when she eats the apple. That's established because she literally just said she'll be buried alive. Like she's laughing maniacally about the dwarves thinking that she's dead and burying her alive. And so if she's not actually dead, she's just in like this death-like sleep and she's still technically alive, then isn't the mirror going to continue to say that Snow White is the fairest in the land? You know, like (laughs) it doesn't, she didn't even seem to consider that. Uh, I mean, why not just more directly kill her? Go to the cottage and stab her, strangle her or something. I mean, this was way before DNA evidence. They're going to have a very tough time linking her to it. You know, like, uh, just kill her. I don't understand. And the dwarfs leave the next morning, and I do enjoy this scene of her kissing all of them goodbye. It's cute. It's adorable. You know, Dopey circles around for another one. Uh Grumpy finally expresses concern, finally shows that he cares. It's very cute. But once again, we see Sneezy blowing his freaking snot in a windstorm. Uh, you know, and it causes Snow White's dress to billow. It's like, this is disgusting. I don't know why they thought this would be cute and funny. It's not, at least not to me. But, uh, you know, we then get the evil queen disguised as the old peddler woman. Uh, she arrives at Snow White's cottage, the dwarf's cottage, and tricks Snow White into eating the apple. Uh, she tells her that it's a wishing apple. And, you know, it's funny because, like I said before, the movie at the beginning does establish that that would be something that Snow White would believe in. So it's most likely that the queen knew that, that she knew that, you know, Snow White made wishes into wishing wells and that sort of thing. So she took advantage of that knowledge. Uh But the woodland creatures know what's going on. They're apparently smarter than Snow White (laughs) because they know who this really is and they know what's going on. And so they run to get the dwarf's attention, urging them to go back to the cottage to save Snow White. Uh, But what's really weird is that Snow White does look scared. Like she's like slowly inching away from the queen. Like she's slowly backing away from her. She has this kind of alarmed look on her face. So if she's so scared, why does she take a bite out of the apple? Like, why does she, I don't know. I just, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Like she knows that the queen is magical. You know, they, they say she's magical. She can trick you. Right. And that's exactly what's happening here. And Snow White never considers that. Even though when the dwarfs leave, Grumpy even makes a point to say, Don't let anybody into this cottage. Don't let anybody into this house because the queen can trick you. And she still does it. Even though, like I said, she must at least be thinking about that possibility because she seems scared. So it's a little weird. But I do remember as a kid thinking like, you know, basically the first time I saw this movie. And I still remember that, believe it or not. Um, I was approximately five years old. And I only know that because I remember what house I was living in. Uh... And uh, my dad, I think it was my dad. It was either my dad or my mom, but I think it was my dad. Uh, He went to the store and bought the VHS. And uh, we watched it that night. 
And I remember thinking, like, this isn't supposed to happen in movies. Like, she killed her. Snow White's dead. She won. Like, I just remember feeling like, wow, this is, you know, it's, it is very dark. I'm not going to say that this isn't a dark movie. It's not as dark as the fairy tale, you know, the uh, the grim fairy tale, which uh, I might have something in store for you in a bit, which we'll discuss that. But it is still pretty dark, especially for a movie that was, you know, had kids in mind. Because she does technically win. She does technically uh, succeed. You know, she gets Snow White to take a bite out of the apple, which puts Snow White in this sleep-like death, you know? So, our uh, death-like sleep, I guess, would be more accurate. Uh, but of course, no, because she then shortly after falls to her death after being chased by the dwarfs. Uh, and interestingly, her scream when she falls is the same scream used in Sleeping Beauty when Maleficent dies. When Prince Philip kills Maleficent with the sword, uh, Maleficent's scream is actually recycled from this movie. It's uh, the queen screaming when she falls. The dwarf's crying is really sad, especially because of how grumpy sobs. Like, this is somebody who the night before did not want her there, did not trust her. You know, when he's come around and, and he is completely broken now that he believes her dead. And it is really sad. Uh, but we know, of course, that this is going to have a happy ending because it's a Disney movie. <laughs> uh, we get a title card that says so beautiful even in death that the dwarfs could not find it in their hearts to bury her. They fashioned a coffin of glass and gold and kept eternal vigil at her side. The prince, who had searched far and wide, heard of the maiden who slept in the glass coffin. Now, there are so many problems with this, I don't even know where to start. Like, A, if you think she's dead and you're preserving her in this glass coffin because she's too beautiful for you to, like, bury... I mean, she's not going to be beautiful for long, gentlemen. There's a thing called decomposition that happens. Uh, you know, like, eventually, she's you're going to have, like, a problem. Uh, so, yeah. But also, it's really, really creepy and unnerving to put a dead body in a glass coffin so that you can look at it like it's some sort of centerpiece. Like, can you imagine... Having a dead body in a glass coffin in your house because you're like, well, this person is just so beautiful. I can't bear to bury them because I can't bear not looking at them. You know, like that's what I mean. I, I said earlier that, you know, I think that one of the themes of this movie is possibly that beauty comes from within. That Snow White is more beautiful than the evil queen because she's kind and loving and giving and generous and uh, curious. And, you know, that's what makes her truly beautiful. But then, that's not really hammered home well enough because then you have the dwarfs keeping her body in a glass coffin because of how physically beautiful she is. So it kind of like backpedals from that theme and says, yeah, but her physical beauty is really important too. So that's what I mean. It gets mixed up. Uh, but that is incredibly creepy and unnerving. And also what makes it even like crazier is that I would assume that the prince would believe her to be dead. I mean, if the title card says that he's looking all over to find the princess who sleeps in the glass coffin, but how could he possibly know that she's sleeping? The dwarfs believe she's dead. That's why they put her in a coffin. So how would the prince know that she's sleeping? He has to believe that she's dead as well. And yet he still searches for her. Why? 
And then when he finds her, he kisses her. He kisses her thinking that she's dead. So he kisses her body. And it's like, okay, so doesn't that kind of make him a necrophiliac? (laughs) Just throwing that out there. I mean, he really does believe her to be dead, right? So unless he was aware of like this, you know, true love's kiss, awakening somebody from a curse thing. But even if that's the case, how did he know that it was a curse? Like it just, yeah, I'm overthinking it. But, uh, you know, she's then awakened by the prince. She gets her happily ever after. Uh, But here's where I get tripped up by the sending. I alluded to this earlier. She says goodbye to all of the dwarfs. And the implication seems to be that she's probably never going to see them again. And I'm just like, why? Like, these are people that you've basically made a family out of, you know, like they sobbed. They were a complete mess when you died. They are basically your family now. At the very least, they're your best friends and you're completely abandoning them to go live with this prince. Like, why can't they come visit you? Why can't they come to the castle to live with you? I guess that because, you know, like they don't seem to have a lot of money. Their cottage is nowhere near big enough for seven people. They mine. Like they seem to be very low class, you know, and yet Snow White is now going to go be queen and she's going to keep them in their place when she probably could have just as easily offered them a place to live in the castle. So it's really, I hate that. I hate that ending where she says goodbye to all of them. I feel like a better ending would have been for them to go off with her. Or at least for it to be established that they would be visiting each other from time to time. I mean, this implication that they're never going to see each other again, that this is a final goodbye, is really aggravating to me. But anyway, I digress. So, yeah, that is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, you know. And here's the thing. Like, I want to give my rating of it. The Queen, to me, is by far the most interesting and compelling part of the movie. Because she just has a charisma to her. Like I said, her motivations are pretty shallow and simple. Not very compelling. But she is very charismatic. She steals every scene that she's in. And that is very typical of Disney villains. I feel like that's a big part of the reason why I love the villains so much. Because they do tend to steal the show. They're charismatic. You know? uh, And the Queen is definitely no exception. But... I wish that she had more screen time. I also wish that we got to see her interact with Snow White in her original form, like not as the hag, but as the queen. We never see that. Uh, And I feel like we get way too much of the dwarfs, not enough of the queen. Uh, Lucille Laverne is absolutely phenomenal as the evil queen. I think that she's the highlight of the movie. She's the best part of the voice acting cast, in my opinion. I mean, the fact that she played both the queen in her original form and the queen as the hag, like both of those voices are her. Like that is very, very impressive. So she's phenomenal. I would have loved to have had more of her. Obviously it has some antiquated and problematic elements. uh, But like I said, they can also be at least partially forgiven because it's from a different time. I'll definitely be, as I've said already, be talking more about that on the podcast as we hit movies like Peter Pan and, you know, movies that are arguably even more problematic than this one is. Uh, but, you know, I it does lose a little bit of uh, points for me because of, like I said, not enough emphasis on the queen, the antiquated, problematic themes in it, uh, and also that stupid yodeling scene, the yodeling song. It just, I've said it already, I hate it, it goes on too long, it's unnecessary. So, anyway, I settle on a 7 out of 10 for this movie. Uh, it's a classic it's a beloved. Uh, I've seen it countless times. I'll probably see it countless more. <laughs> uh, but, you know, 
it's it's definitely not perfect. Uh, I'm actually really looking forward to the live action remake coming out next year because I feel like it's probably going to uh, rectify some of what I feel is wrong with this movie. So it might be a situation for me like Beauty and the Beast where I actually liked the live action version better than the animated version. And that's not to say that I don't like the animated version. I love it. I grew up with that. It's beautiful. You know, it's a gorgeous, beautiful movie. But I liked the live action one even more. And I think that this might end up being one of those cases where I like the live action version more because of the depth that they're most likely going to add to the story. So I do have some input that I want to share with you that was uh, shared with me from uh, one of my closest friends, Amanda. You know, we are both big Disney fans. In fact, uh, something that I can link in the show notes for you is uh, we last year uh, recorded a cover of What Dreams Are Made Of from the Lizzie McGuire movie. You can find that on YouTube. And like I said, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but she had some thoughts on Snow White and not only the movie, but also the original fairy tale and how it differs from the movie. When looking at any Disney movie, you have to consider what the source material is. Many animated Disney musicals have been inspired by fairy tales, myths, and legends. The reason why fairy tales and mythology have become so long-lasting and resonant is the way that they connect to the human condition, emotions and situations that are experienced again and again. In both the Disney version and the original Snow White, her stepmother is very envious of Snow White's beauty and willing to go to great lengths for it. Some might argue that her disguises as hags reveal her true self since kindness and goodness are considered to be the most beautiful. A very disturbing difference between the Disney version and the original would be the age of the princess, which, looking at the Brothers Grimm fairy tale, is only seven years old. There is no notation of any change in age from the beginning of the story to the end with the implication that as soon as she began to stay with the dwarves, she needed to be wary of her stepmother finding her. While her age is problematic for a romantic happy ending, it also brings forth the question of how and why she would have learned to clean, sew, and cook at such a young age. As the crown princess, you would expect her to be taking lessons in etiquette and politics and learning how to run a castle and attend balls and not how to darn socks and knit and take care of the house herself. In the original story, her age is a large part of why the dwarves took pity on her, most likely because youth is often considered pure and innocent. The main difference between Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the Disney version, and the original story has to do with the rule of three. Three is a motif often found in fairy tales and folklore, some considered a magic number. In the original tale, the stepmother slash witch tried to kill Snow White three times. The first attempt on Snow White in the fairy tale is that of a bodice that has been put on her and tightened too much from laces that the woman was selling, and it was loosened by the dwarves. The second attempt was a poison comb put into her hair, which was removed by the dwarves. The third attempt was a poisoned apple. While Disney fans may only be aware of the third attempt at all, it is interesting to note that the guy she took in order to convince Snow White of her sincerity and to gain her trust in each of those situations was that of a hag 
which, given her dislike of age and her desire to be considered the most beautiful, would be the form the queen herself would most fear. One might then ask themselves, why would she consider a hag to be the most trustworthy when we're often taught and shown that older women most often have ill intent? Prince Adam, more commonly referred to as the Beast, certainly didn't consider the attention of an older spinster woman as anything but repulsive, but that's a story for another time. In the original story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Snow White was so beautiful that she was given a glass coffin and the prince fell in love with her, so he ordered her brought to lay to rest in his kingdom. As people were moving the coffin in the original telling, the bit of apple dislodged from her throat and she awakened. In the Disney telling, true love's kiss awakens her. In many Disney tales, true love is how many curses are cured. As a hopeless romantic, that always seemed really sweet to me. However, original fairy tales, folk tales, and mythology focus far more on pragmatic and practical applications such as the consequences of actions. This can be seen in the way the dwarves knew to remove the bodice, to remove the comb, and the simple dumb luck that happened the third time. The Disney tale incorporates the prince and princess marrying and having a happily ever after, but the original ending was far more sinister, with the prince seeing the stepmother at their wedding, forcing her into red-hot iron shoes in which she had to dance until she dies. I'm not really sure which ending you prefer, both of them have their own problems. One with kissing a dead person, and the other with causing someone to wear heated shoes and dance in them until they die. Both endings have a lot of really bad ideas for children and in general. So yeah, thank you so much for that, Amanda. That was really, really awesome insight. And, uh, you know, there were things that I'd completely forgotten about the original fairy tale because I have read it. It's been a few years, but I have read it. And uh, I'd completely forgotten about how the apple dislodges from her throat at the end because of how somebody handles the coffin. I'd forgotten about that. I did remember the queen being forced to dance in red hot shoes until she died. I did remember that, but I'd completely forgotten about how the apple dislodges from her throat. I'd forgotten about the fact that she's apparently seven years old in the original fairy tale. That's even worse than 14. That's insane. Uh, but I did want to cover too that like, you know, Snow White, you know, knowing how to cook and clean and uh, darn socks and all that stuff, uh, as opposed to like ruling and learning royal etiquette and stuff like that. I mean, it does kind of make sense because the queen was insanely jealous of her and therefore kind of put her in the role of a scullery maid, right? The movie says that she was dressed in rags and made to be a scullery maid in the castle. So because the queen was basically trying to hide her beauty. Uh, so uh, to me, it kind of makes sense that she would have those skills, but not necessarily the skills of a ruler. Yeah, uh, like I said, great stuff, Amanda. Uh, I hope that you'll continue to do this and uh, maybe even come on the show live at some point. Uh, but before I get out of here, I want to uh, let you know how you can reach out to me. Like if you would like to do what Amanda did and submit something, uh, that would be amazing. 
Uh, it could be written or something recorded like she did. Uh, you know, so yeah, please do reach out to me. And there are a number of ways you can do that. You can email disneyshpodcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash disneyshpodcast. You can follow the Instagram page, which is Disney's podcast. Uh, yeah, I try to keep things simple for you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, feel free to also reach out to me personally. Uh, you know, I, I do have a personal Instagram account as well. And you can follow that at The Lost Passenger, which is, uh, you know, the three words, The Lost Passenger, no underscores or anything, no underscores or anything like that in any of the info that I've given tonight. Uh and if you liked what you heard in this episode, then please, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast uh, on whatever platform you're using to listen to it. Please subscribe because that way, when a new episode drops, you'll know. And next up on the show, I don't know exactly when this will be. That's why I'm encouraging you to subscribe. But next up on the show is my favorite animated Disney film of all time, featuring my favorite Disney villain of all time. And that would be 1959's Sleeping Beauty. So until next time, this was Disney reminding you that you're the one who can fill the world with sunshine. Sunshine.